Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to the 90th episode of Greater Than Code. Wow, that's a lot. Is that um, right? 90? That's what it says. Wow. I guess it seems right. It's a lot, but it's good. Doesn't feel like more than like 88 to me. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with uh, my great friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, and I feel like I should make a quote from Back to the Future or something like, let's see if you bastards can do 90. Um, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Hi, I'm also here with the amazing Coraline Ada Emke. Amazing, huh? Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm Coraline Ada Emke, and I am really excited about our guest today. Um, we have on our program today, Chelsea Troy. Chelsea Troy had plans of becoming a spy, but when that didn't work out, she found her way to software engineering. She's written apps in most of the popular programming languages, and she currently works on machine learning apps at Ascent Technologies. She writes about programming and the tech industry at ChelseaTroy.com. Welcome, Chelsea. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you and I go way back, don't we? We do, we do. We met because when I was learning how to program, the person who was teaching me, Jay, he introduced me to you, and you gave a talk at the program that I was going through. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, she knows about machine learning. I have to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to a Chicago Women Developers event and uh, I saw you there. And that's kind of how it started. Yeah, it's been great knowing you all these years and watching you like develop and flourish and really shine in our industry. And you, you're a beacon for a lot of people. So I'm really thrilled to have you here. Oh, thank you. So as you know, and as our producer prepared you for, our opening question is, what is machine learning? No. What is machine learning? <laughs> no, our opening question is... You're breaking is, the illusion here. We don't know that. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> You're disillusioning our audience. Segfault, segfault, segfault. <laughs> Eat too many inside jokes. Um, <laughs> so Chelsea, tell us about your superpower and how you developed it. I think my superpower is that I can do things regardless of whether or not I feel like doing them. I've learned to push through discomfort and to endure discomfort in order to accomplish things that I want to accomplish. And I think that comes from a couple of places. I think that growing up as a queer woman in the Bible Belt, help some with becoming accustomed to discomfort. I think that training has been very helpful in that regard. And I also think that getting my start in programming has contributed a lot to that. I come from, you know, a non-traditional background. I got my bachelor's degree in international relations with plans of joining the intelligence community. Intelligence is in spy, not intelligence is in smart. And switched over at some point in my early 20s. So there were a lot of skills I needed to develop that helped me teach myself what I needed to know in order to become good at this field. So your my bio favorite. wasn't lying. You were quite literally training to become a spy. I was. That's wow. literally what I was just going to say. I totally thought that was like a joke. We just like make some goofs in our bio. Like some people do that. And I'm really impressed that it wasn't just a goof. Yeah, no, totally. I graduated from college. I was fluent in Arabic at the time. You had to be fluent in Arabic or Mandarin sort of to get through the program. And I had taken courses in counterterrorism, counterintelligence. That was really the plan. 
Oh, that's so interesting. I'm yeah. very fluent in Arabic. I know how to say goodnight and cigarette. Leila Saida. And iltabah. <laughs> if you ever see a very cute kid, you walk over and you go, oh, tabarak Allah. And everybody's like, aw. So. <laughs> cool. So um, I know that a big part of your journey has been learning really with your feet to the fire. I think that started in your boot camp days and definitely continuing your, your first job. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it was like when you were starting out? Yeah, absolutely. So as far as self-teaching goes, I think I was able to transfer some stuff that I had learned while I was doing things before programming. While I was in college, I was also a coxswain, which is a real term. And it's the person who sits at the back of the boat and like tells rowers what to do. So I just want to interject for a second. That's a word. That's one of the words, the many words that I learned by reading it, and I had no idea how it was pronounced. Right. So for our listeners at home, uh, that's spelled C O X S W A I N. You might have thought it was coxswain. Indeed. So the thing about being a coxswain is that the vast majority of coaches. We're rowers because the vast majority of people on rowing teams are rowers. There are four to eight times as many rowers as there are coxswains. And for uh, the coxswains out there listening who have coaches who know how to cox, you should know that you're very fortunate to have a coach who knows how to do your job because most coxswains don't, and I didn't. So I had to develop tools for myself to learn how to do the job I was doing without instruction. And a lot of those happened to transfer extremely well to programming. So I got my first job as a programmer. It was at Pivotal Labs, and the learning curve was extremely steep. I found that there were a number of things that really helped me. The first one, which came from being a coxswain, was journaling each day about the things that had gone well that day, the things that had not gone well that day, and what I could do in the future to improve if I end up in another one of these situations where it hadn't gone well. I have found that although I have gotten much better at thinking on the spot, I am never as good thinking on the spot as I am thinking when I have some time. And so if I end up not having enough time in the situation and I end up uh, with some kind of outcome that's not exactly what I would have liked then I can make time for myself to think about it later. And it won't help me with the situation that has passed, but it will help me when a similar situation comes up in the future. That kind of reminds me of a technique that I teach to people that I mentor, where I tell them, if you have Googled something, write down the answer that you found. And the next time it comes up, rather than Googling again, go back to your journal. Mm -hmm. I think the act of writing and reflection is really an intrinsic way that a lot of people learn. It's the motor skills engage a different part of your brain and also the reflection. The reflection allows you to really internalize the things that you're coming across. And it also serves an interesting purpose. And I don't know if you do this, Chelsea, but when someone's been journaling for maybe six months or a year, I ask them to go back in time and see what it was that you were struggling with back then because that gives you a real sense of progress. And I think that sense of progress can be hard to come by sometimes if you're just like living moment to moment. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that in the journal where I 
started recording things when I started at Pivotal, one of the things that I started doing was a technique that I call commit tracing. I was very fortunate in that I had a team that wrote very well circumscribed commits, by which I mean clearly named commits that contain all of the changes necessary to build the feature that the commit message describes and none of the code that is irrelevant to building the feature that the commit message describes. Because I had those well-circumscribed commits, I had an opportunity to go in, decide, usually before work, what commit I wanted to trace that day based on which features I was interested in learning to build. Then I would open the diff for that commit, and I would copy by hand the code that had been changed in order to write that feature. And I would write down any questions I had as I went along, circle any terms that I didn't know. And I would go back and review them later, ask questions and that type of thing. I've described the technique to a couple of people and usually it gets described as intense, which is not untrue, but I found it to be very helpful. And interestingly, I was looking at a notebook from that time pretty recently and very early in the notebook I'm talking about dependency injection. I'm trying to figure out how dependency injection works. Dependency injection is a technique in programming. When you're using one object inside of another, then you can decide what version of that object you want to use at the time that you knew what the object is using it. It was something I really didn't understand at the time and something that comes very naturally to me now. So I have found that looking back makes it clear how much progress you're making, which can be very motivating when your day-to-day slog kind of makes you feel like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. Am I getting better as a programmer or, or, or whatever you're doing? I think that journaling can be really helpful for improving a lot of skills, not just programming, not just coxing, but I hesitate to say any skill because I haven't learned every skill, but I would say a lot of skills. I think another thing that we're kind of like going without saying as we're talking about this is the difference between like typing something, writing it and like writing it down on paper, which I think is a huge visceral difference. And I'm a huge proponent of writing things on paper. I agree about it being useful for like all sorts of skills. I do it for other things in my life too. And when I first started kind of journaling in that way, I was feeling very stressed out about like, well, how should I organize this in a way that I can like reference it easily later? And that was kind of like weighing heavily on my mind at first. And then I realized that like, I like, it's not that I would never reference it later, but the likelihood of me trying to reference like an individual thing that I wrote down is lower than I expected because the act of writing it down puts it in my brain so hard that I can just reference that thought that I have now. And the fact that it's on paper feels irrelevant, but it's not irrelevant because it wouldn't be in my mind if it weren't also on the paper. Does that make sense at all? It does. That's really interesting because like I'm having a lot of resistance to this idea of like writing anything down on paper. And yeah, that was one of the first things I thought was like, well, if I write it down now, I have to like figure out where I left the paper and then visually scan through all of it to find the thing that I wrote down before. And uh, so it's really interesting to hear that that's less of a concern than than you would. I really just like write a bunch of things down, fill up a notebook and then like put it in a pile and like often never reference it again. But it makes me feel good to know that it's there. Interesting. So I don't do journaling per se. I keep what I call a work journal and a personal journal, but it's more a record of the things that I have done. I find that sometimes by Thursday or Friday, maybe this is a, a, a side effect of getting older and not having 
as great a memory as I used to have. But sometimes Thursday or Friday comes around or even a Monday and I'm like, I don't feel like I did anything. I just had so many meetings and my work journal is broken out day by day, week by week. I have one text file for every week of my life and I'm able to go back and reference it and say, oh my God, it was on Tuesday that I did this big thing that I've been relying on for information ever since Tuesday or as of Wednesday, that feature didn't even exist. And now it's just like part of, well, of course it's there. And it gives me a sense of accomplishment. And I find that's really valuable because accomplishment is what motivates me. And if I feel I'm not accomplishing anything, then it starts kind of a downward mood spiral. So having that record is really good. The other side effect that I'm looking forward to from keeping a work journal is when it comes time to make a case for a raise, I have a record of like everything that I've actually accomplished. And I think that can be really valuable too, because when it comes time to have a conversation like that with your manager, it's easy to forget all of the things you've done that have really made a difference. So I like having that record. That makes sense. It particularly resonated with me what you said about using it as motivation when you are motivated by accomplishments. It strikes me now how easy it is to forget just a couple of days later that you did something and start to take for granted maybe the work that you did in a way that causes you to sort of mentally not count it for the week. And having those things count can make a big difference. Definitely. The way my psychology makeup works, I tend to devalue things that I did and overemphasize things that I did not do or things where I fell short. That's one of the many ways that my brain is mean to me. And so having a record is really helpful in sort of fighting against that urge or that tendency. I think that's super common in like lots of people. I see that a lot with feedback. Like getting a lot of good feedback and like a little bit of bad feedback is like upsetting to people, even if it's overwhelmingly good. I'm in yeah. kind of in the opposite position, being a notable person on the internet or being internet famous or whatever. The vast majority of feedback that I see is very negative because people assume, good people assume, or people who like me assume, Coraline's got this. She's she projects confidence and she's always doing things. So she's okay. And sometimes I'm not okay. But I can't really say that I'm not okay without that being used against me. So that can be really difficult. I keep a folder in my Dropbox called kindnesses. So whenever someone says something nice to me or sends me a nice email or a DM or a, a tweet, I take a screenshot of it and I save it in those days when I'm really feeling like shit. I will go back and look through my kindnesses and remind myself that, hey, I actually do mean something and the work that I'm doing is actually valuable. I think that's a really good idea. I can't uh, purport to your current level of internet fame right now, but more people have started to read my blog lately. And I have started to realize like what it is folks are talking about when they say that the vast majority of the feedback that they're getting is negative. And I am only in the beginning stages of learning to cope with that kind of thing. And I don't think this is the whole story, but the thing that I have latched onto the most recently and found helps the most is 
when I receive that feedback to consider whether or not the person giving that feedback is in the audience that I am attempting to reach. And I have found that the vast majority of the time, I can worry less about their feedback on what I've written because what I have written is not for them. A good example of this is when I've written pieces on inclusion and I try not to become like the voice of inclusion, you know, Ideally, as a tech person, I could just talk about technical things and get really excited about tech. But by virtue of who I am in the tech industry, that is not entirely going to happen. And what I have found is sometimes when I write pieces on inclusion, I'll get feedback from folks who don't necessarily have experience with what it is that I'm talking about. And they'll say, you know, well, actually, I don't think it's the way that you have said it is. And I used to fight back against that and say, you know, well, that may be your lived experience, but my lived experience is that this happens. And then they'll say, well, my lived experience is that your lived experience isn't real. Or it won't, they won't exactly say that, but that'll be sort of the gist. And I have learned to not even bother because I didn't write that piece for this person. I wrote that piece for people for whom this is their lived experience. And even though it is addressed to the industry as a whole, those are the people it's going to help the most. And so theirs is the feedback that I weigh the most heavily. The same way that if I were making a product, I would care most about the feedback of the people who were buying it. Yeah, that's a really great perspective. And that's something I'm going to try and internalize. You mentioned your blog, Chelsea. And I remember one of the pieces that I think got a lot of traction for you and that I found very interesting was your approach to measuring participation in meetings. Do you want to talk about that piece a little bit? Sure. So What I talked about in that blog set was a phenomenon that I see in meetings in a lot of tech companies. We tend to assume that the best sort of off-the-cuff meeting structure is something that I call an unmoderated caucus. So an unmoderated caucus, that's a term from Model UN I learned the other day, and that is why I know it. I did Model UN when I was in high school, but... It essentially is a bunch of people are in a room and everybody kind of jumps in when they have something to say. And it can seem like a really effective meeting structure for folks that are in leadership because it feels fairly informal to them and it feels like an opportunity for everyone to speak. But what I have found is that that's not necessarily true. Often, you know, folks in leadership and folks who are more used to speaking up end up really getting to do most of the talking in those meetings. And folks who don't necessarily have all of that don't get the opportunity to contribute in those meetings. I thought for a long time about what precise criteria there are for whether or not you're going to have a positive experience trying to contribute in a meeting like that. And I put them together and I created a questionnaire to determine what I call your caucus score. And your caucus score, it's on a scale of 0 to 18, and it helps you determine how likely it is that you'll have a positive experience in one of those caucus-style meetings. And there are things on there like, I don't need to know much about a topic before I start to form an opinion on it. I don't usually get interrupted when I speak up in meetings. Or on the flip side, there are questions like, you know, check this box if you regularly start to speak in meetings and then find yourself getting interrupted. Or if you feel like you need to have a lot of information on a topic before you're prepared to speak on it. 
Because what I have found in caucus style meetings is that there is an unwritten rule that we follow that goes like this. In a caucus meeting, the first person to speak into the silence gets the floor. And the thing about that is that in order to be that person, you have to be waiting for the exact moment when the silence hits. Because if you time it wrong and you go too early, you interrupt someone. If you time it wrong and you go too late, then someone else has started to speak before you. So in order to get that timing right, you actually have to stop listening to the person who was speaking before you in order to listen for the moment in time where you will be able to interject in what's considered to be the appropriate fashion. And so the nature of a caucus penalizes people for listening instead of talking. And I think the most valuable collaborations happen when folks are able to contribute and are also able to listen to the contributions of others. That is fascinating. And I, I totally agree with that perspective. Another dynamic is that people who get the floor set the context and tone for the rest of the discussion, especially if you have a group where you have people of varying levels of experience, the people who are going to who are most likely to have an opinion based on limited information, as you pointed out, are the more senior people. And the way they frame the problem is going to influence the thinking of the people who are, in fact, listening, maybe to the detriment of getting new ideas out there. I think that's true. I think also that what can end up happening in those meetings is you'll start to have a pattern of who does the speaking and who doesn't do the speaking. And I've seen that influence organizations even after they start to try to implement some structure in meetings. And sometimes the conversation will be like, how do we introduce the structure and still make sure that person X is getting time to say what person X needs to say in these meetings, rather than thinking, well, maybe, you know, when person X is contributing this much to the meeting, persons A, B, and C, who typically sit in the back, don't have the opportunity to contribute to the full extent that they can, to the full extent that they would like to, to the full extent that their experience qualifies them to, or the impact of the problem on their lives qualifies them to. I think that problem could also even be a problem from thinking about it from the other direction too, which is that like, let's say I am known for contributing a lot in meetings and then I feel like maybe I should give some time to other people, or maybe I don't have a lot to say about what we happen to be talking about today, or maybe I'm just like feeling anxious and not feeling very talkative today. And I feel like I have created for myself an expectation of my participation that might be higher than other people's participation. And now I feel like I'm failing at this meeting if I don't talk X amount of time. So I feel like there's just a lot of expectations on everybody. That's true. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but I guess you're right. And I think I've experienced some of the same thing. Like, you know, somebody will present a problem, everyone turns to me and I'm like, oh, whoa, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out, though, that Jamie, in, in even having that thought, you're displaying what, in my experience, is a, a fairly unusually high level of self-reflection <laughs> among people who tend to talk a lot in meetings. <laughs> I guess that I learned too. it from Greater Than Code. My question would be, you talked about implementing structure, and um, I think that 
obviously there are some ways that you could implement structure that would be even worse. <laughs> and I'm wondering when it comes to if, if someone was at a point where it's like, okay, we need some more structure in our meetings. Like what would you recommend as like good ways to go about that? Sure. So the way that I have seen the most success, particularly for teams that are just starting out in an attempt to do this is to introduce a moderator role of some kind in the meeting. Valerie Aurora actually talks about this. Um, Valerie's the principal consultant at a company called Frameshift Consulting. She runs these ally skill workshops where she talks about how meetings need to have, I'm going to try to get all four of these, a gatekeeper, a timekeeper, a facilitator, and... A note keeper? A note taker. That's exactly what it is. Yes. And... She also talks about how one person can perform multiple of those roles. It doesn't have to be four separate people doing those roles. But I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I think that having a moderator of some kind in meetings can be really helpful because the way I've described it in the past is that a moderator can protect people's opportunities to speak so that they have the opportunity to listen. They can do that by keeping a list of who wants to speak and making sure that those people get to speak. They can do it by interrupting an interruption and handing the floor back to the person who was originally speaking. They can do that by soliciting the opinions of folks in the meeting who have not had a chance to speak if they want to speak. Sometimes they won't, but optionally giving them that floor if they would like them to have it. And they can do it by imposing sort of a time limit on folks speaking so that folks are encouraged to go for a briefer explanation of what it is they're trying to say or considering a little longer what it is they want to say before they step onto the floor. It seems to me that these sorts of problems are exacerbated by remote cultures too because a lot of the ways that we speak up, hopefully without interrupting people, is looking at body language so that we know when someone is truly done speaking. And if all you can see is a talking head on a video screen, and the larger the meeting, the smaller that talking head is, it can be really difficult to pick up on those cues. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that uh, remote meetings, because of the the technological frictions that you've mentioned, they exacerbate some of these issues that we've talked about with the caucus. And I think that is, in fact, one of the reasons that remote cultures get a bad reputation among leadership in a lot of organizations, because people in leadership usually are not used to experiencing that friction in meetings the way that people who don't get to contribute as much are. And so then they get on a remote call, they're experiencing that friction for the first time. And they think it's because of the remote meeting and not because of the caucus exacerbated by remoteness. Interesting. So how do you prevent marginalized people from automatically being tagged as the people to facilitate or moderate or note key? Because I heard an anecdote on one of my SAC communities recently where they were having a discussion about different communication styles between men and women. And the emotional labor that women and other underrepresented people in tech have to do. And someone said, wait a minute, we should be writing some of this stuff down. 
who wants to take notes and not a single man in the room volunteered. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's like, were well, you even listening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very clear example of the difference between when we talk about these things and say that we want to fix them versus the actual follow through part. I think a lot of times there can be a disconnect there. But like that's a general theme of like, yes, I want I want things to be different until that requires that I actually change my behavior. Right, exactly. Oh, I have to do something. Well, then this changes everything. <laughs> right. It's because things are the way they are because they got that way. Exactly. I think with regard to making sure that the moderator roles don't end up constantly on folks from marginalized groups, I don't have a full solution to this, but I think the partial solution is to make it more explicit and important for folks in the workplace to have those kinds of skills. You know, we have a lot of organizations in tech right now trying to improve things by doing stuff like implicit bias training. Then they do their like, annual feedback or whatever, and they're still hearing about all of this inclusion-related like stuff that happens, and they're like, oh, we just spent five figures or six figures on implicit bias training. Why didn't it work? And, you know, the thing is a person can take a class, but if they're not being graded on it, then the feeling in the class is a little different. I think that happens a little bit with that kind of thing, and I think that, like, right now, we we tend to not include inclusion-related skills in determining whether someone should be hired, whether someone should be promoted, whether someone should have a raise, whether someone should have a leadership position. And that doing that would make it feel more important to folks to be able to demonstrate those types of skills. For example, I've talked about this some, and I think that moderation is one of the inclusion skills that folks should learn. And if that moderation skill showed up on employee evaluations, I think folks even from dominant groups in meetings would be interested in performing the moderation roles because they know they need to demonstrate that they can do these things in order to get, you know, whatever the next raise is, the next promotion or the next set of responsibilities. So that'll be something that they'll have more intrinsic interest in thanks to that extrinsic motivator of uh, an evaluation criterion. So I think it can be a little hard to figure out how to measure something like that. I haven't come up with anything explicit for this so far, but I think that skills like this are something that it can help uh, for a company to sit down and have a conversation about, are these skills that we value? To what degree do we value these skills? How are we going to determine whether someone has the requisite skill level or not? And uh, it's not just moderation, you know. I think there are other inclusion skills that we could include in something like that. I think of solicitation as an inclusion skill. That is getting the opinions of people that, you know, normally do not have their opinions solicited on things. Who is going to be impacted by this decision? Who has experience that's helpful in making this decision? Who's likely to disagree with me on this decision? I think that soliciting those types of opinions is also a skill. I think that explaining technical topics to folks is an important inclusion skill as well. And there are two parts to it. The first is assuming that people are as advanced as is reasonable. I cannot tell you how many times I have had Git Rebase explained to me since I learned Git Rebase several years ago. And in that situation, usually folks are assuming that my level of knowledge is much less advanced than it is. 
what can be more appropriate in that situation is to determine uh, the highest level of advancement that folks are likely to have that you're talking with, as well as to cultivate the approachability such that if you mention something and somebody doesn't understand it, they feel comfortable asking you a question about that. Coraline modeled this really well for me relatively recently in that we were having a conversation about GraphQL, using GraphQL in something. And she asked me, do you, do you know about GraphQL? I was like, yeah, I know what that is. And she moved on. And that worked. And the reason that worked is because I am comfortable saying to Coraline, actually, wait, no, I don't know what GraphQL is or whatever the thing is. You know, Had I not known what it was, I would have had time there to stop. And I think that that can make a big difference in how folks level set their conversations with others in an organization. And yeah, that's a super important skill that I try to practice. And I find that there's a, a some nuance in how you ask the question, right? It's very easy to say, well, you know about this, right? In a way that implies that the listener is stupid for not knowing about this thing already. And so I find myself having a hard time, like, maintaining that balance. Like, I want to ask, you know, if people understand a particular concept, because I want to make sure I'm not leaving them in the dust. But I also want to try to do it in a way that doesn't make people feel less. I think one of the reasons, Chelsea, that that works with you and me is we have a level of trust. You know that I'm not going to be judging you for not having had experience with technology X. And you know that the place I'm coming from is positive and affirming. So I think communication is about relationships. And they are contextualized by the relationship you have with the person with whom you're communicating. I think that's why technical interviews are so difficult. Because the power imbalance implicit in a relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee is so vast, and you don't know what it is that you're assumed to know, even if the level you're applying for is very explicit, you don't know what the baseline of the person asking you questions is. But the sort of relationship dynamics are, are implicit in every communication that we have with our coworkers, with our managers, with our mentees, with everyone. And I think that the way you develop that trust has to do with how you respond if you get it wrong. Like if you assume someone knows something that they don't, how do you respond? And like the nuance, as Sam was saying, and how you word that. And also, if you assume someone doesn't know something and they do know about it, how do you respond? Like, I totally understand where you're getting at with it being frustrating about like, yes, you're explaining this to me, assuming that I, I'm not technical enough to know and why that's frustrating. But like, I think realistically, sometimes people are going to assume you don't know things, you know, and if they're like, oh, sorry, I like, let's move on. And that's like just a better way to kind of handle mistakes in conversation, which are always going to happen. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, the Recurse Center's manual, which I'll drop a link to in the show notes, but one of their rules is no feigning surprise. Uh, I can't believe you don't know what that is. That And that's annoying even in other contexts. Like, that's really annoying when it's like, what? You never saw my favorite movie? It's like, no, sorry. I don't know what you want me to say. Like, that's just not like a good basis for a conversation ever, I feel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're an individual with different life experiences than me? How weird is that? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of weird if you think about it. <laughs> In the same way that it's weird that we're meat-covered skeletons riding a rock floating through space. I totally agree. That's very strange. <laughs> 
but I think that's true, that it can be one of those things that, yeah, feigning surprise. I've heard an excellent alternative to feigning surprise, which is basically like, oh, you don't know what that is? Oh, man, I'm so excited that I have the opportunity to tell you about this amazing thing that I really like. That's a great approach. I like that. I'm a fan of that one. Yeah, I just dropped an XKCD link that will also go into the show notes. It's uh, it's called 10,000. I think that... We can also practice responding to that one as well. The other day, I was talking to someone who was extremely excited about GraphQL, actually, and the potential that it could hold for us and what we could do with it. And I was talking back and forth with this person, and I said, yeah, you know, to me, GraphQL kind of looks like soap, but with JSON, rather than (laughs) XML. And... Like, this person was very excited, and I think I inadvertently, like, squashed that excitement a little bit, which I try very hard not to do. And that night I was thinking about it. I was like, ah, dang it. Like, that person was really excited. And I was like, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just soap with, with JSON instead of XML. Well, one of the which, things... regardless of whether or not I think that's true, I probably shouldn't have put it that way. Yeah, well, there's a value judgment there, right? Right. I try to keep value judgments out of discussions of tech as much as possible. I've tried to purge from my vocabulary, for example, the notion of bad code because Mm -hmm. code is contextual. And unless you're a code archaeologist, you have no idea the context in which code was created. And it could be the best code at that moment in time. But value judgments are so easy for us to make. And there's an aspect, too, of like contempt culture there as well, right? Where we're like, oh, we're better than soap. We've we've moved past soap. When in fact there were good things about soap and it was the right tool at the right time. And just because we've moved past it doesn't mean there's no lessons to be learned from it or no way to revisit its strengths in a different form. Oh, absolutely. And for what it's worth, I you know, I still think soap is, is in fact a valuable it's a valuable approach. It's a protocol that we can learn a lot from. I've worked at a lot of enterprises that still use some type of SOAP-related endpoints, and I've also run into a number of situations where alternative protocols, for example, REST, didn't necessarily suit the situation that we were trying to address. And something SOAP-like really was a better solution for what it was that we were trying to do. I think the message that I was trying to get across to the person I was speaking to was that like, oh yeah, GraphQL is really cool. And there's also all this really interesting history around queries like that from, you know, back when SOAP became a thing in the late 90s and Microsoft introduced these ideas. And I think I failed to communicate that the way that I would have liked to. And I think you're right. I think it absolutely sounded like, you know, uh, well, it's like SOAP, which, you know, forget SOAP. I wanted to go back to something that was kind of implicit in the conversation earlier, Chelsea. And um, I remember... Once someone responding to a person saying they were self-taught and they were saying that when you simply state that you're self-taught, you are closing off avenues of development for other people because you're not showing your work. You're not showing the path that led you where you are. It's really easy to understand someone who says, I went to college for four years and I focused on computer science because someone can say, oh, if I went to college for four years and studied computer science, I could be in the same place as this person. 
But when you say, I'm self-taught, you're not revealing your journey and you're not making it replicable for other people. Oh, yeah. And sorry, I have to jump in here because this came up in our Slack this morning. Uh, Jacob Stobel said, uh, I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says, the common industry accepted term to describe how I learned programming is self-taught. But I've always found that so strange considering all of the resources and communities that have helped me along the way. And I wanted to mention this for a couple of reasons. First, hey, we've got a Slack and you should join us in it. But also because, yeah, it totally captures that idea that when you say you're self-taught, what you really mean is you didn't pay for classes. You used other people's free resources that they put out there with love. Yeah, and the, and the lesson that you can share with someone is that these resources exist and you can use them and you can be successful with them. So give them a map instead of just announcing your destination. I think that's a really helpful perspective. It's something that I've only just started to really be able to do. For a long time, I felt very anxious about articulating how I had gotten to where I am as a programmer, in part because I thought, well, these were just my techniques. They might not work for everyone. And another concern, which was, what am I going to end up leaving out? And it's only recently that I've been able to sort of start thinking about that and start writing about that. I'm working on a series on the aforementioned blog right now about leveling up as a programmer and the different skills that helped me level up as a programmer, not without relying on others. I rely on resources of others all the time, but maybe without relying on the direction of a curriculum. And so far it's been about, you know, figuring out out how to rely on discipline rather than motivation to get things done, figuring out how to record work and identify patterns in the way I work, figure out what's going to work best for me, how to record the work that I'm doing and how to remember things best after I've learned them, how to engage with the material so that I get as much out of it in as little time as possible. But I think you're right that articulating those kinds of things can be extremely valuable for giving people a roadmap in the same way that, you know, a curriculum at a four-year college is a roadmap, but self-taught is uh, much more amorphous what we mean by that. I think it plays into this programmer myth, too, of the lone hacker working nights and weekends to master a technology just by sheer force of will and I actually did some research on the phenomenon of the lone genius, which I found really interesting. It was related to the book that I'm writing. At one point in time, until the Enlightenment, the word genius was never used to refer to a person. Genius was an external force that inspired a person to greatness. If you talked about someone's genius, you were actually referring to this abstract, almost spiritual being that was almost like a muse to them. And then during the Enlightenment, you started seeing that the meaning of that word change to be an attribute of a person rather than this external force acting on a person. And I think that uh, that really got cemented in the uh, late 1800s and early 20th century, where you have people like Edison. And the story of Edison is really fascinating. He's not one of my favorite people. But he was a patent machine, right? The Rather, the company that he started was a patent machine. And he hired a lot of engineers and electricians and just a, an army of people to iterate 
on patents. And there was a biography of Edison written by one of his assistants. And they said that in the early days of the company, they had a lot of trouble selling patents. And when they started telling the story of how Edison was this lone genius cranking out these inventions, people were more interested in the story and were more likely to buy the patents. And the writer actually said, we all know, but the public didn't, that Edison is a plural noun. That's interesting. You know, sometimes I feel like the way that uh, the Tesla slash SpaceX slash whatever other companies are under the Elon Musk umbrella, I feel like that marketing machine has done some of the same. (laughs) Oh, definitely. It feeds into this myth that we'd like that a person just has this intrinsic talent and that our communities or our society or our country are the perfect breeding ground for these geniuses who can change the world. And that ignores the contributions of, well, often marginalized people who are behind them and doing the hard work and that they're they're essentially taking the credit for. And I think we can fall into the same trap with calling ourselves self-taught, where it really centers us as these shining beacons of how you can just work hard and you can achieve anything when there are a lot of people who work hard and struggle and we're not acknowledging that struggle and we're invalidating their experiences. It's really interesting because I agree with everything you've just said, but I've also think that like as someone who, you know, doesn't have a degree in computer science and works in tech for me, I guess it might depend on how people say things. Cause for me, it's also been helpful to hear like, hey, I also don't have a degree in tech and like I'm doing pretty well. Like you don't have to because when I first started, I was just like, what am I even doing here? Like I'm not going to be able to be successful at anything because I don't have this like baseline thing and seeing other people that was like, no, it's okay. Like you don't need to have that. I don't have it either. Like it's okay was like really helpful for me. It's a close enough to the same thing that I think it's like gets fuzzy in the middle somewhere. And so it's really interesting to me that like, a similar thing can go these two like very different ways in terms of like being helpful and being empowering. Yeah. I I think it comes down to framing and who you give credit to. Um, I'm self-taught as well. I am a college dropout and I was studying English, but I acknowledge that there were so many people along the way from teachers that I had in high school, all the way to mentors that I had in my professional life that made it possible get where I am today. And I try really hard to be humble about that and to acknowledge those contributions and to acknowledge the privilege and luck that helped me get where I am today too. Because I think that there are people who work really hard and don't succeed. And if we can make that feel to them like a personal failing, or we can make that a challenge for them to find resources that will support them in their development. Yeah. And I think the word humility is really crucially important there. And I, I can't believe I'm about to use Isaac Newton and humility in the same sentence, but this one quote of his, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, I feel like that really puts the credit where it belongs. Like, yes, you made some contributions, you had a unique insight, and you were in the position to have that insight because all of the work that was done by all the people who came before you. I think what we're identifying here is a potential big difference between, you know, I'm self-taught. If I've done it, you can do it too. And I've managed to cobble together what I need to know to do this. And here is what I did. And here is how I did it. Here are the resources that I used. And 
here are my acknowledgements. I think this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately because I've just begun to write my first sort of longer thing that has anything to do with tech. I wouldn't necessarily call it a book, but one thing I've been thinking about a lot is how to go about doing the acknowledgements. And the vast majority of acknowledgements, in my experience, are relatively brief and happen at the end of the book. But my inclination is to like make it the first chapter and just write a full-on thank you letter to a whole bunch of people. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that in a way that I can um, showcase a story so that people will want to read it. And then within that story, make it clear that I'm not here of my own doing, you know, because what I find myself doing when I read books is sometimes skipping the acknowledgments. And I'd really like, you know, people to see this is the story and these are all of the people that are a part of the story. It's introducing the cast and making them part of the story instead of centering yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I try to do and I could, I could be a lot better at is that, you know, whenever I'm communicating an idea to somebody that is new to them, if possible, I try to communicate first that it was new to me at some point and who I learned it from. So, like, if I'm trying to teach somebody about refactoring, I will freely say, like, I learned this great thing from Katrina Owen. You should go check her stuff out. Here's the thing I took from that, and I'm, I can give that to you. But now you know who Katrina is, and you can go appreciate her stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm a Rails developer, and I learned Rails from um, Michael Hartle's Rails tutorial. And every time someone is like, hey, I think I want to try out Rails for the first time, I like recommend it very wholeheartedly. And at this point, I'm like, I should keep a measure of like how many people have read that book because of me. And that's going to be like one of my stats in tech. Yes. <laughs> I found myself recommending as well Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm to Ruby developers as well as Python developers. And I have found myself recommending Working Effectively with Legacy Code by Michael Feathers to basically anyone regardless of language as well. But maybe the answer is not to put the acknowledgments at the end or at the beginning, but to put them in line and keep the person's attribution as close as possible to the idea. I like that idea. I have to think on this more. I'll keep you all posted. What happens? Please do. So this has been a really awesome conversation. And now that we're getting kind of towards the end of it, what we do at the end of our shows is that we all take a moment to reflect on something that really stuck out to us, um, something that we want to think about more, maybe some an action item for ourselves or others um, that we want to do. So in the middle of the show, we kind of touched on something that I think about a lot that's kind of important to me, which is, I guess, extending empathy to other people. Um, Coraline got at that idea in a like specific technology way when she was talking about like bad code and how code isn't bad. It's just contextual. And I made a joke in the chat about Coraline, don't you understand? Like only I have bad code. Everyone else has contextual code, which I thought was a funny joke, but it also kind of got me thinking about going both ways, go both directions in that conversation. Um, we talked about letting people be excited about stuff. We talked about being excited to teach someone something rather than being judgmental that they didn't know something. And all of those things are things that I think about consciously, but I think that it also goes the other direction, which is like, other people have ba- have code that's contextual. Well, maybe I should extend that same empathy to my own code. 
maybe if I want to let other people be excited about stuff, I should let myself be excited about stuff and not feel self-conscious about it. If I'm going to be excited to teach something to someone, maybe I should try to be excited rather than ashamed to like not know something because it's an opportunity to learn it and let someone else teach it to me. I'm going to think more about how that expresses itself when it comes to empathy towards myself and like allowing people space to extend the same empathy towards me that I want to extend towards others. Sure. I can go next. Jamie reminded me of something that I've been thinking about for a while when they were talking about contextualizing code and understanding where code comes from. One thing that I've discovered on a couple of occasions that I discovered again in this podcast when we were talking about Thomas Edison is that the story of where things come from and the people that they come from can make them both uh, much more interesting and also much more accessible. And I have found that with a lot of tech-related things that I've learned over time. For example, the history, I'm working on a blog post on the history of REST and SOAP and their predecessor, CORBA, and even TCP and HTTP connections in general right now. And all of the stories around where all of that came from is very helpful, not only for understanding what it's good for, but also for uh, making it clearer, like where all of these things came from and where we might run into them again. So that's something that I would like to figure out how to make a much more explicit part of my learning process as I'm learning how to do something. I also want to figure out where it came from and what's the history and what is the predecessor to this thing that I'm learning about and where did that come from and why is it being replaced? I think all of that context is going to make me uh, more knowledgeable and it's going to make it easier for me to help myself as well as others become more empathetic about programming decisions. That's really interesting and it ties into what I was thinking about and that is the value of history. Whether it's personal history or the history of a technology, it's kind of the same thing because History is a story that we tell ourselves, and it may or may not be factual or completely representative of what actually happened. But if we're talking about our own journey, we're telling a story of our history. We're telling our origin story. And if we talk about our technology, it's helpful and I think inspiring to other people to understand that progress is evolutionary and that, like Sam said in his uh, Isaac Newton quote, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think that for a lot of people who get into technology, it can be very daunting and they feel like they're surrounded by geniuses and they may look at themselves and say, I'm not a genius, therefore I'm not going to be able to contribute. And when they see that all knowledge is incremental, I think that would be really, really helpful. And in reflecting on how I can do that for myself, I've been doing software development, uh, web development for 24 years now, and I don't recognize the things that I am learning still. Like, I say that I'm always learning, but if you ask me what I've learned in the past month, I couldn't articulate that to you. And I think the journaling idea, although I have tremendous resistance to putting things on paper, I might do that in a text editor rather than on paper. But I think that recording my own journey will give me that sense of fulfillment and reassure me that, yes, I am still learning and growing as a programmer. And that's something I'm going to try and practice a little bit. 
Well, now I have two reflections. <laughs> One of them is about, uh, you know, the history of, of software and having empathy for people and for context. And one of the best ways to understand a tool is to understand the context that existed when that tool or before that tool existed, because everything that we use was written by somebody for a reason, because they looked around at what was already there and didn't see something that suited their needs. And so before you can really understand and I think criticize something, you have to be able to adopt that mindset of like, well, Here's the thought process that would go into creating a tool like this. And it really, I think, helps me have a lot more respect and empathy for the tools that other people use um, and the people who use them uh, and the people who made them, of course. The, the other thing I was going to say is uh, way back towards the top of the call, Chelsea, you you uh, brought up the idea of an unmoderated caucus. And I hadn't read your blog, so that was a new term to me. And you said something that really hit me hard, which was that the nature of a caucus penalizes people for listening. And I had already been thinking, like, the structure of meetings, like, penalizes people who are neurodivergent or uh, have lesser privilege on one or more axes. Um, and I was, I was already sort of concerned about that structure for those reasons. But thinking about it that way made me think, well, maybe there's a way that you can fix it. But when you said, like, it penalizes people for listening, really made me realize that there is a fundamental problem with that structure and it needs to die. <laughs> so thank you very much. And I, I really look forward to reading your blog post about this. Oh, sure. Well, that wraps up episode 90 for us. I want to remind everyone that if you are interested in continuing this conversation and having other really interesting conversations with people who care about the human side of technology. If you go to patreon.com slash greater than code and pledge at any level, you get access to our Slack community filled with very thoughtful people. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there. And again, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on the program today. And I look forward to continuing to follow your blog and continuing to follow your journey. Thank you for sharing with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.